Every week on our regular episodes of Shift Shift Bloom, I get to interview people whose lives are very different from mine. And we talk about how each has navigated the twists and turns inherent in transformation. But I wonder, what's universal about how people change? What are the common threads, the connective tissue? I tend to look at change through the lens of my own experience, for the most part, the artist's life. Lucky for us, my curiosity is shared by the co-creator of Shift Shift Bloom, Dr. John Lyons, luminary and author in the field of clinical psychology and systems change. Who better to help me unpack all the questions that fill my mind when the interviews are over? I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, TCOM Takeaways, my conversation with Dr. John Lyons about a recent interview. in the studio with Dr. John Lyons, and we are here today with a very special bonus episode where instead of talking about the interview subject, the interviewee, we are going to talk about the child welfare system. So welcome, John. Thank you. It's good to be here. So good to see you. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, we are We are in the middle of this fabulously compelling two-part episode with Juliana Barton, and we're not going to talk about it until both episodes air. So you had this great idea to talk about child welfare today, and I think it's a really important subject, so I'm glad that you brought that to the table. Yeah, I thought um, her story is quite compelling, and I'm looking forward to the second half of it. But I think uh, Mm -hmm. to contextualize it in terms of how does the child welfare system work? Might help the listeners understand our story with a little bit more depth. Yeah, why don't we start right there? Tell me, uh, tell me, can you tell me a little bit about the history of child welfare in this country? Yeah, so child welfare technically started with the Social Security Act of 1936. That's where that was formalized and it actually was created. But its origins actually go back to the Industrial Revolution because back when our culture was predominantly farming, agricultural, mm-hmm. uh, there was an incentive for families to have a large number of kids. And those kids were kind of like commodities, right? I mean, they, they were an important part of the functioning of the farm, and having kids to help was an important goal for families. And so they had large families because there was really not too many because with a lot of kids, you could cover the farm for a lot of years. So mm-hmm. the incentives were there. And then as people started to move off of the farms and into the cities, those habits continued. But now you're in a tenement and you've got 10 kids and that's a mm-hmm. problem. And then in the Industrial Revolution, it was really dangerous, right? The work conditions were horrific. Uh, the pay wasn't that great. And then there was things like the Spanish flu that killed a lot of people. So people died, parents died, and then suddenly there's these 10 kids with nowhere to go. So that, the industrialization, the Industrial Revolution actually triggered the beginning of the orphanage movement. And so wow. religious orders thought they should step up and try to help these poor kids. Um, and so they created orphanages. And that's really the 
operational startup for welfare. So it was formalized in the middle of the Depression in 1936. Okay. So that's that's the beginnings of it. So it's done as a, there's some federal regulations, but it's mostly a state-run initiative. That's great. That's really concise, and it makes a lot of sense. I don't think a lot of people think about just how those each of those pieces connect to the next thing, the agriculture, having lots of kids, moving into the city. Yeah, it literally took decades for families to reconfigure their goals vis-a-vis -vis having kids to something that's more consistent with urban living. And then you've seen, of course, in urban settings, you know, the number of kids people have has continued to shrink because it's a there's less value added. Also, the role of children in our culture has changed, right? So yes. They're less of commodities and more as representations of our of their parents, right? And so, you know, they're their parents' aspirations in some ways, rather than somebody to help milk the cows and make sure that you know, pigs are fed and the field is plowed and all those things that you have to yeah. get, take care of in, in a farm. So you you just mentioned that there are some federal federal regulations, but mostly child welfare is run state to state. How is the whole system supposed to work, if there even is such a thing as supposed yeah, that's to work? A, that's a great question. So the way it's supposed to work is that if somebody suspects there's abuse or neglect, then it, that would trigger an investigation. So that would be a call to a child welfare professional, and they would come in and do an assessment. Now, this is where it starts to vary. For instance, in Florida, the assessments of abuse and neglect are done by the sheriffs, the county sheriff's department. Whereas in other states, there's actually people who work for the state child welfare authority who do the investigations. So those investigations, there's a lot of variation in how it's actually done. Um, but essentially, okay. it's to look for uh, abuse and neglect and just, just make a decision, is this family, this is community living situation sufficiently safe for the child to stay there? Do you, as a professional in this field, have a strong opinion? I'm surprised to learn in Florida, it's the sheriff's office, just because with all of the news recently about how the police are overburdened with things that they aren't really expert in, um, I just wonder if you think, is there a best practice that should be followed? I think it's how you do it rather than who does it. But okay. given that police are trained to be warriors, um, and given some of the challenges that we've observed in the culture of the police world, then I suspect it could be problematic, right? I mean, but that doesn't necessarily mean it will be. I mean, because there's also really good people who work in the police, and there's really yep. good people who do that kind of work. So I think it's the person and the structure of the situation. The other thing that's happened since 1936, I should note, because I think it's relevant for our discussion with Juliana's story, is that 1936, just to contextualize, is also right around the same time that the Daughters of the Confederacy were putting around the Lost Cause monuments. So the monuments that we're taking down now because of their uh, glorification of a racist history come mm -hmm. at the same time as the initiation of child welfare. And I think that has some possible meaning that we should consider as we talk about how the system actually works. Not how it's intended to work. It's intended to keep kids safe, but how it actually works in practice. Wow. Can you tell me a little bit so more about that? So what happens then, is, so just to complete the story of how the system is designed, intended to work, 
So yeah. once there's a determination of is there abuse or neglect, and there's a decision either remove or not remove, most systems, most states have some things that they can do to help families to try and prevent this from becoming something so that if they decide it's not sufficiently dangerous to remove, then are there things that we can do to prevent a future removal? So those are okay. prevention kinds of services, diversion kinds of services, whatever you want to call it. So those exist. They're variable state to state, but they do exist. Or if they decide to remove, then that's when they enter foster care. And the first stage of foster care is a decision about where to place the child. And different states have different kinds of strategies to do that. Uh, the okay. goal is to try to find a family home as quickly as possible. Lots of states try to emphasize family, um, and they have guardianship kinds of laws and rules to facilitate that. Other states use you know, paid foster parents kind of models, and so that's pretty much the foundation. Foster care is the foundation of the child welfare system. There are some federal mm -hmm. guidelines to encourage uh, permanency. So permanency, the goal is to try and achieve permanency in 12 months, which means finding someplace where that person, that child, that youth can stay permanently. You know, so permanency is sort of like in, a, in air quotes because you know none of us actually have permanency, right? I mean, so that's sort of a, but it's the idea of can the, can you find a place where the child can actually grow up so that there's some hope that that would be their home, their permanent home. So that's the goal. Mm. So if fostering doesn't work out, so if the needs of the child are too great for a foster parent to handle, and some of these foster, some of these foster parents, by the way, are absolute saints. I mean, these are unbelievably good people. Some of them are just in it for the business, but many of them mm. are really, really committed good people. You might be shocked at the number of child welfare caseworkers who also work as foster parents because they love the kids they help and they end up saying, hey, I want to raise you. So, wow. end up adopting them and so forth. So there's, there's really angels who work in the system, but the system doesn't work all that well. Sadly, because of the design of it, but the people in it sometimes are really special people. I've only ever met, yeah, I think I've only ever met those really special people. I'm happy to say I have several friends who've been foster parents, uh, fostered into adoption, um, mm -hmm. talked to some people who are on both ends of the system, and it's pretty remarkable what they're willing to do. Um, is is getting a kid to a family member is that is that kinship care is that what that's yes. referred to mm -hmm. as do you know statistically like how successful that is usually it is uh, that's actually a, a, a scholar at Loyola University in in uh, Chicago that's done quite a bit of work on that and, but there's also others around the country kinship care is actually all the evidence suggests it's more desirable than than a non-relative foster care that I'm fond of saying blood is thicker than pretty M, right? So that if you have somebody who has a relational um, connection with you, your commitment to them is going to be stronger. So, for instance, one of the things we see in our research is that relative foster cares will tolerate greater level of behavioral emotional challenges, you know, more difficult behavior uh, mm -hmm. than will regular foster care. So a paid foster parent on average, that's not saying all paid foster parents, but paid foster parents on average tend to, they tend to prefer babies and they tend to prefer kids who don't have significant like oppositional behavior or sure. sexualized behavior or um, 
those kinds of acting out kind of behaviors, which are really difficult to manage and really scary if you're a parent. And that's where, res that's where congruent care comes in, is for the kids that cannot be managed. Now mm. the problem is, is you know, if you build it, it will, they will come, right? So there's a field of dreams phenomenon. So the more beds you have in congruent care, the more likely there will be pressure to fill those beds. And so if you uh. have a system that struggles with identifying foster homes, but has a significant number of beds in their congregate care system, then naturally kids can tend to go there even when they're not having behavioral emotional needs that rise to the mm. level of not being able to live in a foster home. And so that's particularly true of teenagers that you, as you mentioned actually in, in the first half of Juliana's uh, interview, is that if you're a foster parent, I mean, which do you want? A baby or an adolescent who's in your face? Well, you know, give me about a heartbeat to think about that, right? I mean, it's you'd much rather yeah. have a, a little baby than somebody who's really challenging you. So somebody who has trauma triggers, somebody who is ready to transition, and you have to kind of help them. So it's a it's a uh, buyer's market, as you were. So uh, foster mm -hmm. parents can take who they want, which makes perfect sense, right? I mean, they're doing a favor and they're not paid very much, so you can't really make a living off of being a foster parent. Um, so, but it's a challenge, particularly for youth having a sufficient quantity of homes. So that's why you tend to get youth either going into group homes or going into relatives or friends of friends of friends, you know, parents of friends also happens for youth. Are there statistics, I'm sure there are, I don't know if you know them, on, like, let's say, how many children who need foster care, what percentage of them are lucky enough to go into kinship care? I don't know. It's a moving, it's a moving target because kinship care has mm. become a priority. So there's been a lot of efforts around the country. I don't know the number. There's 420,000 mm -hmm. kids each year in some form of foster care. I don't know the percentages of how many are in kinship care and so forth. I do know that that it's increasing because uh, people are seeing the value of that. And they've had to overcome some barriers, you know, because historically, you know, governments don't like to pay families to take care of their own kids, right? And so you have to find mm -hmm. strategies to create uh, the opportunity for child welfare systems to incentivize aunts and uncles and grandparents to raise kids. So that's... I mean, there's a lot of that happening outside of the formal child welfare system, right? Grandparents are major, major players in childbearing, particularly in poorer parts of mm. our culture because if you're a single parent and you work, you, you're not home, right? You have to work. And so, and if you're paid poorly, you might have to work two or three jobs in order to pay the rent and get food on the table and that kind of stuff. And so having grandma in the house to raise the kids makes an enormous amount of sense, right? And so you have these sure. kind of complex environments that are just a part of growing up um, in certain aspects of our culture, particularly in poorer areas. You've seen a lot, like, you're, this is your field. I won't talk about Juliana, but talking about adolescents in foster care, congregate care, homes in particular, do you see a path towards making it better, either making congregate care better, or I don't want to say incentivizing, but making 
the idea of fostering a teenager more appealing somehow? I mean, what can be done about that? Yeah, are there things that can be done? I think there are. I think it actually, and, and we've actually found that there are some circumstances, uh, particularly for older teenagers, older youth, young adults, mm-hmm. almost, that actually yeah. they might be better off in a group home than in wow. a family environment if that family environment isn't embracing. And so particularly for kids who are struggling with what we call attachment, that of forming relationships, particularly with parental figures. I mean, if you've had mm-hmm. really poor role models as parental figures, sometimes you don't really want to have a relationship with somebody who's in that role. Right? If you've been abused, yeah. if you've been neglected, if you've been treated like dirt by people who were supposed to be your parent figures, then you might not really want to try that again. And that's particularly yeah. true for 16 and 17-year-olds who are almost there, right? They can see the finish yeah. line. They're almost done with this childhood business. And so it probably, for those kinds of kids who really don't want to endure trying to fake a parental-type relationship, that they probably are better off in a group home kind of environment. And they, But it has to be a healthy environment, right? So, I mean, our basic strategy, which we do this repeatedly, is taking people who have problems and putting them together with other people who have problems. That can be a problem in and of itself, right? Because there's yeah. these contagion effects and so forth. So you really have to have some good, strong leadership in the group homes to establish a healthy culture. You have to have rules. You have to follow the rules. But you, at the same time, it can't be too draconian, right? Because mm-hmm. as you probably remember from your own adolescence, adolescence is the time where you begin to shift from just following parents' rules into exploring and making your own mistakes by trying to figure yeah. out what your own personal rules are. And so that's a little bit of a challenge in group home kinds of environments. So you do have to have some pretty interpersonally talented people to be to staff group homes to make it work really well. How, how old, generally speaking, I know state to state things are different. How old does a child need to be before they would be considered able to go into a congregate care situation? Oh, that's a great question. When we fight this battle constantly, and across okay. the country there is no real age limit, right? So there are six-year-olds wow. who go to congregate care. My personal belief is that's not a very good idea. I think that wow. you know, six-year-olds are tiny, right? You should be able to handle behavioral problems with a six-year-old if you use your language and have some basic concept of ABA and so forth, right? I mean, that's not... Right, so anyway, so... When you start to get bigger, I mean, there's some 12-year-olds that can be 6'4", 300 pounds, right? I mean, so it becomes harder right. because you don't have um, that, right? You don't have the ability to be more physically stronger than, than them. Not that you're going to physically fight them, not that you're even going to touch them in that way, but just the power differential because of size matters. Um, yeah. So I think, but, you know, there's a real debate. So there are most places allow the admission of children under 12 into congregate um, care. Wow. Luckily, it's not a huge percent, but we're talking maybe okay. between 8 and 10% of all kids in congregate care okay. are below 12. So 
I would like to see a world where that was not encouraged, right? And that would actually mm-hmm. be a rare exception. Um, but that's a aspiration. Other than that, what does a successful congregate care home look like? Like, what what makes what might make one run really well in terms of yeah. organizational structure and leadership? Yeah, I think having people who are trauma informed, right? And, that makes a difference, right? It makes mm-hmm. a difference. Trauma-informed is really important because, number one, all kids in child welfare have experienced at least some trauma, and many of them have, have experienced a great deal of trauma, either repetitively or multiple. And so, for instance, you could have an adolescent who's not listening to you when you're lecturing them, and you could look at them and say, you're not listening to me. You have to listen to me. You stop not paying attention, right? Because you're thinking they're being passive aggressive. Mm-hmm. If they've been traumatized, they actually might be dissociating. And they and if they're passive aggressive, you have to get in their face, right? You have to get the them to be actively aggressive so that you can sort it out. If they're dissociating, you need to take a step back. Okay. Right? You need to take a step back because they can't actually interact with you until they come back from where they went. Because one of the things that kids do when they've been traumatized is to remove themselves from the situation by going off in their heads to someplace else. And that's called dissociation. Um, I mean, I'm being a little bit colloquial about it, but that's called dissociation. That, that happens and then that becomes a real problem because you really have to give kids safety and space. Or as another example, you know, if you had a kid and, and you walk by their bedroom door and you see they had kicked off their covers, you might go in and cover them back up and give them a kiss on their forehead. If that child had been raped repeatedly by a caregiver in the middle of the night, you would never, ever, ever do that. Because that you, what you should do is build a safe and sa- a sanctuary for their bedroom, that they're safe in their bedroom so that they can re-learn how to sleep without being fearful that somebody's going to them. So those are the kind of, there's all sorts of different things that being trauma-informed means in terms of how you interact with kids. And I think that's the single most important thing is being able to not take things personally, to be able to see behavior in the light of uh, people's trauma history and to not think of it as misbehavior, but think about it. So because what happens, for instance, is one of the things that people have discovered is that having experiences of traumatic uh, events in your life, particularly as a child, it causes changes in brain function. And where it changes the brain function is the amygdala. And the amygdala is a regulatory function. It's down at the bottom of your of your brain. And so kids who are traumatized have dysregulated, and so they have dysregulated emotions. And so they can be all over the place emotionally. Right, in a short period of time, or they can be, you know, hair triggers, right? Just hair triggers. So they're hyper vigilant, they're dysregulated, and so teaching kids how to re-regulate themselves is really what you need to do. You can do it actually, and you can rehabilitate your amygdala so that you are regain your capacity to regulate your emotions. You see the same thing with stroke victims and with head injury folks is that they lose the ability, and you can relearn how to. So you'll see. Stroke people who have strokes, depending on the stroke, they might just 
suddenly start crying, right? And that's because their amygdala is just out deregulated. So you just have to teach the, teach your brain how to re-regulate the affect. So, which is easy to say and hard to do, but it's doable. This is There's a really a whole dumb bunch question. of skill-based techniques that are designed for trauma-informed care. You don't have to sit down and talk about your trauma, which is the other thing. It's like people sometimes fall into the mental health view of it, and let's you know, let's sounds like you've been traumatized. Kind of uh, sounds uh. like you're angry. And is that that kind of stuff? That may not be helpful, right? It probably mm. is helpful not to spend a lot of time talking about the trauma and more time learning skills. You know, mindfulness kind of skills, those kind of things, so that you can. Help yourself re-regulate. I have a dumb question, which is, mm -hmm. are all congregate care homes run by licensed clinical social workers or people with social work backgrounds? No, it depends, right? So the group homes, which are small, you know, typically four to eight kids in a house in a community. And those kids tend to go to community schools and so forth. They live with four to eight other kids and there's either a house parent, you know, and some of those are like mom and pop. So a couple opens their house to make it a group home, right? So you can do that. Okay. You can get yourself, get through the regulations and so forth and do that. There are also, you know, companies that do group homes. There's also group home, you know, so there's, you know, like Boys Town has a, is a very large agency that provides uh, group homes. They also provide other forms of care. So there's a, there's a okay. bunch of different models. Um, and oftentimes the smaller the organization, the less sophisticated the approach, um, but a lot of them have kind of, you know, like parent-teacher kind of uh, models of, of, uh, of how the staff should interact with the youth and that kind of stuff. So some of them are quite good and some of them are not so good. I, you know, the way I describe all systems is you've got pockets of excellence and piles of crap and a whole lot of stuff in the middle. Right, and so what makes the news yeah. is the piles of crap. But there are pockets of excellence, but a large number of people are like, good enough. So, that yeah, middle range. Okay, tell me about um, what. Tell me about what the relationship is between TCOM and child welfare. So we do a lot of work around the country. A, a large number of child welfare systems are beginning to use our approach. So, so what we do with them is teach them how to do consensus-based assessment programs. Because one of the big challenges of child welfare is it starts out as a police investigation and it evolves into a child a social worker a social work intervention. So. So particularly for this, so actually in some ways that's why the Florida model is not that horrible because, you know, if the investigation is by the police, then when the social workers come in, they're not seen as part of that investigation. It's separated. Uh, so in most okay. systems where it's all the same organization, there's this pivot that the system has to make from saying, you know, we have decided you're an inadequate parent, we've removed your kids, to what are we going to do to help you so that you can have your kids back? And that's an easy thing to say and an extremely yeah. difficult thing to actually pull off and so our approach is yeah. really one of the strategies that you can use to help with that pivot so it basically empowers the biological family as experts in the story of their own children so they get to participate in child family teams and so forth so that you can come to a consensus understanding we're all on the same page this is what's going on this is what we need to figure out how to address and if we can do this then everybody can live their best lives and you don't have to have the government involved in your life so that's basically our approach and so 
we've had quite a bit of success in the, in the early implementations. We have some places that have been at it for a while and some places that are very new to it, but the places that have been at it for a while, they actually have been able to improve their system in a slow but steady fashion. Mm. We oftentimes enter under a lawsuit, so because you know there's lots of things bad that happen in child welfare, and there are advocacy groups that sue states to get things fixed, and so we're oftentimes one of those fixes. So and that actually wow. has worked pretty well. We've gotten a number of states already out of lawsuits by helping them improve. And the way you get out of a lawsuit is you make your system better for kids and families, and then you get out of a lawsuit. It's fairly straightforward. Yeah, fairly straightforward, but it must be really gratifying to see your work implemented in that way and have real effect on humans and families. I don't have trouble getting up in the morning and go to work, so I, I like what I do. Um, I feel privileged to have a, a voice in the process of change. So. Mm. This has been so educational, uh, not just for me, but I think for a lot of people listening who probably just think about foster care in a way that's like, oh, I saw a movie about this, you know, in 1980. Mm -hmm. I saw an after-school special about a foster kid and don't, don't really stop to think about what's really going on and what the challenges are and just the whole topic in general. Uh, um, Let me circle back to something we started to talk about when I mentioned 1936 and that historical yeah. context. There are folks that are, so there's enormous racial disparities in child welfare. It's probably the system that has the greatest amount of racial disparities. And that disparity is that African-American kids are removed at far higher rates relative to the population than any other kids, to the point that some people feel like the system is designed somewhat from a white supremacy perspective, right? Okay. And if you read books like, um, um, Dr. Raz's book from Rochester, she writes things, she's called, it's called Abusive Policies. And she makes the case that the expansion of the definition of trauma, uh, of abuse and neglect, back in the 60s and 70s, which was used to expand funding, came from a fundamentally white suburban perspective. Um, mm -hmm. And so everything got made into trauma, and it actually has had this incredibly unintended consequence on poor communities, which are predominantly communities of color. Um, since poverty and race is very highly correlated in the United States because of historical discrimination that some people say doesn't exist, but it clearly does. Um, and that's the driver, right? And so it's, it's a bit of a problem. So, because... Tell me her name again. Uh, Micah Raz, R-A-Z, Abusive Policies is the book. It's actually a good book. Sounds really good. Sounds, it's powerful, sounds and it really good. talks about that movement and the political... So they felt like they couldn't get the act passed, so Walter Mondale let it, unless they made it about suburban white women, that if you made it about poor people, that Congress wouldn't pass it. So And so they made it, and the way they ended up structuring it was one that had very unintended negative consequences mm -hmm. for poor people. So if yeah. you see what happens in child welfare, it's not abuse and neglect. It's abuse and neglect in poor communities because rich people can hire lawyers and they can hire help and so forth. 
Um, and, and so you see a very, very differential justice. Um, so, so the racial disparity is probably a poverty disparity, but the vast majority of kids, and we're talking like 80%, are, are because of neglect. And typically it's a combination of, of substance use and poverty. And that creates a, a living situation that is seen as unsafe for the child and then removal. So the parent is a single parent and is absent because they're using. But the problem is that they sometimes are absent because they're working and they have nobody, no daycare mm -hmm. and so forth and so forth. Anyway, so it's a bit of a challenge. So Yeah, you leave us, I think, on the note that it's daunting and also it's everything is related. Like everything I think what we're related. seeing now in our culture really is everything is related and yes. what can you look, you can't look away from anything because it's, it's related to something else that you do care about in a way, you know? Yes. And I honestly think we're in a better position than we've ever been as much as we've got very loud voices that are clearly racist. I think that's better because at least it's out there. It's always been there. It has always been there, but yeah. at least it's now out there and we know it's there and we know who it is because they're actually saying it. And yeah. I get, that gives us a chance to address it in a way that's not possible if it's secret, you know, if it's all encoded, if it's all in the background. So I, I'm actually hopeful and optimistic that we have as a culture the ability to figure this out and create an equitable society. And I think it's a lot of work, but I think it's doable. So. Yeah, you're, you're no stranger to hard work and you have a great team around you and it's always a learning experience to spend time with you. So. Thank you for sharing your vast knowledge on this subject. I know we only touched on a little bit, but we'll put some great things in the show notes uh, for people right. to read if they're interested in learning more. Pleasure chatting with you as always. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Shift Bloom is a co-production of TCOM Studios and Actually Quite Nice, engineered by Tim Fall, and hosted by me, Kristen Sorelli. Episodes are available wherever you download your podcasts and are made possible by listeners just like you. Please consider supporting our work by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash shift shift bloom. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at pradefoundation.org and at tcomconversations.org. And by the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky, online at iph.uky.edu.